Welcome to another Vet Team Training Podcast. My name is Amy Newfield, and I'm both the host and owner of Vet Team Training. Please check out all my other blogs, vlogs, and podcasts at vetteamtraining.com. Today, I'm going to talk about how to get into publishing and lecturing, which is very strange for me because at this point, I've been doing it for 17 years, which is absolutely mind-blowing. But if I had looked back and someone had said to me, Amy, you're going to be doing a podcast or helping people get into publishing and lecturing later on in your career, I would say, oh, hell no, that is not going to happen. First of all, there's no way I'm going up on stage. There's no way I'm going to be lecturing people. I have absolute stage fright. That's not going to happen. And publishing, no. I, you know, I like to write. I just don't see myself as really being an author. So you can insert laughter here because obviously I guess I am an author of two books and multiple, you know, peer-reviewed journal articles and books, uh, chapters and books, which is crazy. And I know how to lecture at this point. So I wanted to share with you my knowledge because I think it's important to get people who have different voices, different ideas, and different ways of lecturing into the speaking circuit, as well as publishing. In fact, right now, a lot of magazines and newsletters and online journals are really struggling to get authors. And unfortunately, we need authors because authors are the creator and the content that we pull from as we are lecturing. So it's really important that people do studies, write articles, educate through the written word. And honestly, I've always sort of been a writer. You know, I was the editor-in-chief of both my high school and college newspaper. And when I graduated from college, I actually felt naked not publishing anything. So I reached out to a little-known magazine who it doesn't exist anymore. anymore. It was Vet Tech Magazine, which is really amazing. And I got to write my first article on something called The Spleen. It was very boring. It was literally titled The Spleen, very unoriginal. Writing is a way that I can impact the world and writing is a way that I can get my message out there without actually having to speak. And so for me, writing's always come a lot natural to me as opposed to lecturing. So let me talk to you about why a crazy person would want to ever get into lecturing or publishing. So why would a crazy person want to do this? One, it can open many more doors. It looks good on a resume. You get a better understanding of the subject. To be perfectly honest, a lot of things that I have chosen to written about were because I didn't understand it like the spleen. And I learned a lot about the spleen just by researching and having to write an article about it. It also feels really good to see your name in print. There it is. There's your name and your credentials. And you wrote it and it's actually in print, which is really cool. Honestly, a lot of times people think that authors get paid a ton of money. No. In fact, most journal articles you get paid zero dollars for. You could spend months doing it and you get little, if any, payment. So why the heck would somebody want to publish? For all the reasons that I just said. Honestly, it's it to me sometimes a way easier to publish something than it is to lecture. Ultimately, you get to educate hundreds, if not thousands of individuals. I mean, still to this day, people cite my articles that I've written, you know, from a decade ago. I'll be reading someone else's article and in the references, it says Newfield comma A and has my article in there. Like that's mind blowing to me. When you get the opportunity to lecture, you do genuinely get paid for that. So lecturing does yield you some money, sometimes some really good money, and sometimes not money at all. So let's just talk about the publishing route, because I think that's really important. 
If you are thinking about publishing, I want you to figure out what is your passion because you should only be writing about stuff and topics that really is of interest to you. Otherwise, you're going to hate what you write and it's going to seem like a chore. So I want you to find a passion, get geeky about something and figure out what you really love. Originality counts. When we're pitching ideas to journals or online magazines, originality counts because hashtag not another CPR lecture. I get it. CPR is amazing, but at every single year, there's always a couple CPR lectures. If you can go ahead and make sure that your article that you're writing isn't about something that everybody already has written about, then it's amazing. So when new technology, new innovation comes along, if you can be the first one to publish on it, you actually become a subject matter expert on it. And new authors really do need to wow something with being unique because you don't have any street cred. So if I am pitching an article to a magazine at this point in my career, people know who I am. I don't need to you know, say, hey, I'd like to do this. Here's my bio. Here's a sample of my work. Can you please? I beg, I plead. And they go, okay, we'll finally let you publish an article. So sometimes you do have to beg a little bit, give a little bit of street cred, you know, give them a little bit of sampling of how you write, and then they'll accept your article for publication. So come up with something original and give that as your pitch. So you found a topic, you're really excited, I'm excited for you, now you need to get your bio ready and you need to go out and put yourself out there to publishers. And there's two types of publications. You have publications that are peer reviewed and then you have publications that are just editor reviewed. So let's break down both of these. Peer reviewed journal articles are reviewed by your veterinary peers. Now, a lot of times you're not gonna know who reviewed your, your article, but they tend to be subject matter experts or leaders in that particular subject. I am actually a, a peer reviewer for a couple of different publications, but I also know that some of my really good colleagues, when I submit for a peer reviewed journal article, it could be one of my best friends who also is an amazing subject matter expert on say, I don't know, ischemia reperfusion injury, who's going to be reviewing my article. I'll probably never know who it is. So most of the time it's anonymous reviews, but it is a tougher and longer process. And the information you get back could be from just one reviewer or up to three reviewers. And it can be harsh because how I review an article can be very different by somebody else. They sometimes chew me up and spit me out and it's it's a humbling experience at times. I learned a lot and so I encourage people to always try to publish a peer-reviewed article at least at one point in your career because it's gonna teach you a lot and help you hone your craft and really teach you about writing. Now the editor review is a lot easier. So it's just like it says, it's only one person and they are the editor of either that section in the magazine or potentially the magazine overall. And it's only one person's opinions. They tend not to review it as harshly uh, because they've got a lot of articles. They kind of do a high level view. They may check some references, but it's going to be, here's your article back with my thoughts, my opinions, we're gonna move forward with publishing, or we don't think that this is right for this magazine. So the editor review is a lot easier process, but honestly, the peer reviewed is really going to help you. And now it's time to write, which is really exciting. So you've been accepted, you need to buckle down and just start writing. A lot of people have asked me, well, how long does it take to really write a paper? So typically, if you're going for a four to five page standard, you know, Word document paper, it could take up to 40 hours to write it. 
because you need to research it. You need to research, research, research. Publications really like to see that you've done some level of research. Otherwise, they're probably not going to publish your actual article. So I need you to truly, again, have that passion for what you're writing about because otherwise the research behind it, you're going to be like, this sucks. I'm tired. I'm tired of looking for this stuff. For example, people over the years have said, can you lecture about cardiology? I knew that I was not passionate about cardiology when I started researching the topic. Now, some of you love cardio. Kudos to you. That is not going to be me. As soon as I started down with, you know, electrodes and then, you know, AV node and SA node and, you know, this conduction and that conduction, I thought, oh, yawn. Like, I'm just not passionate about it. So again, make sure you're truly passionate about the topic before you jump into researching it. Now, after you have that actual article, you're going to submit it. Now, do not be offended when it comes back, chewed up, spit out, and has a lot of corrections on it. Even if it was reviewed by your peers, keep in mind that sometimes your peers don't know. And there are plenty of times where I get questions back saying, Amy, what do you think about X, Y, and Z? Or are you sure this is correct? And I go, it's absolutely correct. And here's the data and science to support it. So I'm not going to change it in my article. Remember that writing is subjective. I can resonate with some authors a little bit better than I resonate with other authors. If you've you know, ever decided to pick up a book just to read for fun, sometimes you start reading it and you're like, I don't really love this book because you're not clicking with the author. And that's true even when you're writing articles. In some cases, the editor may ask for some changes. Some of them may be minor. Some of them might be major. But whatever it is, let the small stuff go. Don't nitpick over what the suggestions are by the peer reviews or the editors. Certainly make it your own, but let the small stuff go. There are times where I look at an article that I've submitted, it's an editor-reviewed article, and when it comes back, I go, whoa, they really decided to change it. And it's hard to learn to let the small stuff go, but trust me, your publishing life will be a lot easier if you don't nitpick every single edit that they've made to your article. Once it's published, I want you to just go ahead and brag. Brag just a little bit or a lot of bit. You did something amazing. You're, you now have an article in print and it's pretty awesome feeling. So what are the publications? Well, they're always changing, but we have things like, you know, today's veterinary nurse, the nav to journal, veterinary team brief. Then there's also international publications. So we can look to New Zealand, the New Zealand Vet Nurse Association Journal. Ontario Association for uh, Veterinary Technicians has an, a journal. The Australian Veterinary Nurse Journal or the British Veterinary Nurse Journal. And there's probably a lot more that I haven't even listed. And again, let me be very clear. I'm a veterinary technician, so I know veterinary technician and veterinary nurse journals. And that's obviously why I'm listing those. But if you're a veterinarian, guess what? You even have a larger group of veterinary journals and articles and magazines that you can print to. to. DVM 360. They, they obviously have both veterinarian authors and veterinary technician and nurse authors. So there's a ton of publications out there, but these are kind of the printed ones that still exist for specifically veterinary technicians and veterinary nurses. To me, I actually would always advocate publishing an article before you get into lecturing. Could you go right to lecturing? You can. Do I think that is of a benefit? No, I do not. And here's why. In order to have a really good lecture, you need to have researched the topic. If you're going to be researching the topic, well then just make an article out of it. And I think a lot of very brand new people wanna jump right into getting up on a stage. You people are crazy because I was terrified to do that. 
But in hindsight, the way that I went about doing it, I actually think for me, and this is why I always advocate, it's probably the better way. I think that when you have the ability to take time, write an article, really dive into the subject, you are only gonna be a better subject matter expert when you get up on that stage. When you just get up on stage and start talking and you haven't put in the time to do the research on the subject, you're probably not gonna be as effective. That's just the reality. The other thing is you do need to build up your street cred. Who are you and why do you wanna be on stage start lecturing about this topic? If you don't have a single published article on the subject, it's really hard for me to say, oh, this person's absolutely a subject matter expert, that's why we're gonna pay them to be a speaker at the conference. You don't have any street cred, you have zero actual publications. Why would I think you're knowledgeable in this subject just because you said so? So to me, again, publishing is a great route to get into lecturing. Now, ways that we can get into lecturing are numerous, and sometimes it's honestly just who you know. Right now, becoming a speaker, especially being a successful speaker, is harder now than it ever has been. Someone said it the best to me. It's not just about being amazing at delivering the content. It's also about entertaining the audience. It's not just about being smart. You could get up there and say, today we are going to talk about CPR. We are going to focus this lecture on basic life support. You will not be a speaker for very long if that's your speaking style. It used to be just the smartest people got up on stage, they very much were monotoned and they just delivered the information. Now, speakers come in a variety of different colors, flavors, and tastes. And so there's probably a speaker that you resonate with a lot better than you resonate with others, you know? And I get it, I'm not everyone's cup of tea. I've literally had people say, you're a terrible speaker. That's fine, that's your opinion. I absolutely agree, there's probably a speaker that you're gonna resonate with and that's what makes conferences so great. So it is hard to become a very well-seasoned speaker because it's not just you being smart, it's about how you deliver and engage the audience. And that's very different than it used to be years ago. If you are brand new in the speaking circuit and maybe you have done a little bit of light lecturing for your own veterinary hospital or maybe even a local you know, veterinary group, I encourage you to start off doing a case report challenge. Now, we can see these at a lot of the major big conferences, but I also see that a lot of state organization conferences also having case report challenges. So just to name a few, I'm not gonna name them all, but VMX, IVEX, ACVIM and WVC, so Western Veterinary Conference, um, who is run by Viticus, those are all places that you can find case report challenges, which are pretty exciting. Now, some of that may have changed over the years. So for example, I know that at least for some time, WVC wasn't offering case report challenges. I believe that they're getting back into the swing of things. So don't quote me that that's absolutely the Bible list, but um, that's definitely some of the ones that have case, had case report challenges in the past. So why do we wanna do a case report? Well, you only have to lecture for 15 minutes. There's also a panel of judges that usually consist of high influencers in the veterinary speaking space. A lot of times, conference organizers will be, you know, the judges for these. They are other speakers that can recommend you. So this is a great way of showcasing yourself for a very brief amount of time. The focus is on a really cool case. It doesn't necessarily need to be the craziest case, but the way that you present the material is equally important to the actual material itself. A lot of people go into it thinking it just has to be a cool, crazy case. No, remember it's how you engage the audience. And so the person who wins the case report challenge is the person who's practiced 
therapist who makes sure that they have a really good engaging speaking style and that can wow the judges. Honestly, that's what it is. A lot of times you win money, not all the times, but a lot of times you win a plaque, you win money. And because there are high influencer people who are judging you, a lot of times they can be your foot into the door. This is exactly how I got my foot into the door. I actually reached out to a really well-known veterinary technician speaker at the time. And I said, hi, my name's Amy Newfield. And I'm just interested, how did you get into speaking? And she said, who are you? And I said, I'm Amy Newfield. I've actually published a couple articles at this point, you know, and I don't really think I want to get into lecturing, but somebody told me that I should contact you and think about it. And she said, I would encourage you to do a case report challenge. And so I did a case report challenge at IVEX. It was on ischemia reperfusion injury, really cool subject to geek out on. And I won the challenge. And from there, that's really honestly how I got my speaking start. So I encourage everyone to kind of think about taking that path. Now, if you don't want to take that path, you can certainly try to get into conferences through a variety of other ways. In the very least, you have to have some minimal lecture experience. You need to have lectured for your own hospital, ideally for maybe a local state organization, something like that. You have to have some minimal lecturing experience. And then there's two ways that you can get into the lecture circuit through these larger conferences. One is, who do you know? And the other one is a call for speakers. So in some organizations, like for example, IVEX, the International Veterinary Emergency Critical Care Symposium, they now do what's called a call for speakers. And so they'll put out on the internet or on their Facebook page or on their you know, so website, it'll say, hey, the call for speakers is open. That's your cue that you need to submit your bio, your, your resume, your CV, um, all of your actual experience that you've had within the past of lecturing, and then you're gonna pitch a lecture. You're gonna say, hi, you know, my name is so-and-so, here's my bio, here's all of my street cred, and now I'm interested in lecturing on parvovirus. And a lot of times they will ask, do you have any references, especially if you're brand new? Now, even though there's a call for speakers, the, the conference organizer may also, you know, look through and say, oh, well, I know this person or I don't know this person. So it is a little bit who you know, because unfortunately, that person, that conference organizer is probably going to more gravitate to people that they actually know. Now, if they don't know you, they may actually ask for a sample of you lecturing. So you're going to need to record yourself lecturing to a group and you need to submit that sometimes so that the conference organizer feels comfortable with hiring you on as a speaker for their conference. When you pitch yourself to a particular person or you're making a pitch for a call for speakers, you need to submit at least more than five lecture ideas. If you don't have at least five lectures under your belt ready to go, then you need to build up your lecture bank before you actually lecture. Here's why. There may be a local state conference, you know, a really small organization, maybe just for your state that will allow you to lecture on just one lecture. But pretty much all the bigger conferences, they're going to pay for you with your flight and your hotel, and they're going to pay you a nominal fee. We'll talk about fees in a minute for you to lecture in order for you to be cost effective to that actual conference. They need to fly you in and they're going to work you. They want you to lecture on three, four, five, maybe 10, maybe 16 topics. 
And yes, 16 hours was the most I ever lectured for one conference. They they definitely they definitely used used me quite effectively. And granted, I made more money, so I'm happy to do that, but I might have been a little bit tired. So it's important that you have a lot of lectures under your belt so that they feel like it's worth flying you down there. They're not going to pay $2,000 in travel expenses for you just to lecture one hour. You need to have more lecture topics. And if you don't have that, you need to build that lecture bank. Now for conferences that don't have a call for speaker, how do you know who to contact? Well, in most of the conference program guides, it lists who is the conference track chair. And sometimes you got to do a little bit of digging, but a lot of beginning speakers have had to figure out who is the track chair for this particular conference for the veterinary technician track or for the small animal track. And then when you figure out who that person is, you try very hard not to annoy them. If you can actually meet them at a conference, introduce yourself, you know, potentially be prepared to pitch some ideas to that person, that's gonna be a really great way of saying, hi, my name is so-and-so, I know that you're the conference track chair of X conference, and I'm a brand new speaker, but here's some of my street cred, and I would love if I could send you an email with some topics. Because a lot of times in some of these conferences, they do not have a call for speakers. So it is truly who you know. A lot of the larger conferences actually have an administrator who helps to, you know, do all the behind the scenes conference planning and stuff like that. For these individuals, you'll want to send them a very generic email, perhaps with the title of consideration as a speaker. And so you're basically asking them to forward it to whoever their conference track chair is so that they can consider you as a speaker. You want a well-drafted email, put in a good sales pitch, Definitely attach your bio and definitely attach your lecture list that contains all of your street cred of why they should choose you as a speaker. Things I would stay away from is finding someone's phone number and calling them and asking to be a speaker at their conference. That would be a hard no. That is definitely not going to get you a speaking gig. So that's a hard no. Emailing, okay. Even potentially reaching out on a social media platform saying, hi, I'm so sorry to bother you, but... I'm a new speaker or here's my street cred as a speaker. I'm hoping you would take me into consideration. A lot of times good conference organizers, they want to know who's out there. And so they're always willing to take an email from you. They're always willing for you to just, you know, quick, send them a quick message through Facebook Messenger or through another social media app like LinkedIn or something like that. It's up to them whether or not they accept you. I would not hound them. You're gonna send them the email and it's done. If you don't hear from them, you're not gonna reach back out and pry and say, hey, remember me? Don't forget about me. What's going on? Why haven't you picked me? Stay away from all of that because you'll end up getting blacklisted. So great, you have gone ahead and been accepted to speak at a conference. Now you need to create a PowerPoint and we're not gonna go down all the nuances of presenting. But I am gonna give you some tips and tricks because I wanna just present you some key facts to keep you being a speaker. There's too many people who start in as a brand new speaker and very quickly never get invited back because unfortunately they had a train wreck of a presentation. So find what works for you. Let me be very clear. You were hired on to do a certain job. I wanna make sure that you actually do that job. Unfortunately, a lot of people get hired on as a speaker. Oh my goodness, they're paying me a fee. They're paying my travel expenses. And then you don't practice and it shows. You don't know your material. You are stumbling over your words. You're not well-spoken and it shows. 
As a conference organizer of a several conferences in my career, there's no worse feeling than you decide, I'm gonna bring on someone brand new, give them this chance, and then they bomb. And it's not a good experience for the audience, it's not a good experience for the speaker, and it really unfortunately violates your trust for having newer speakers in the future. And unfortunately, people know everyone in this industry, so what happens is, a lot of people will say, oh, I saw you had so-and-so, how were they as a speaker? And I'll be very honest with them. They were great, they were not great, here's things that I would like to see improved. So you definitely wanna make sure that you are an effective and good speaker when given that opportunity. It's going to take a lot of time and a lot of trying out different things for you to really settle on your own speaking style. If you think that me, Amy Newfield, was the same speaker I was 17 years ago, you've got to be kidding. That is, I have really morphed my own speaking style and it's, it's different than other people's speaking style. Everybody needs to figure out what works for them. And you do that by, at the end of your lectures, realizing what worked, what didn't work, and then tweaking your lectures. You can gauge the audience's reaction. Are they laughing? Are they enjoying themselves? Are their heads down? They're falling asleep? They're playing on their phones? If that's happening, you need to figure out, one, can I get feedback from this conference? Some conferences do offer feedback to their speakers, others do not. So. Pick everybody's brains, ask your audience if they can provide you feedback if the conference doesn't gather any. Ask the person who invited you if they could provide you feedback because you need that feedback in order to improve your style. So I'm gonna give you some do's and don'ts besides obviously working on creating a very engaging PowerPoint. And some of the tips that I have is don't make them too wordy. Nothing drives the audience more than just white on black. So don't do that. There should be pictures, there should be images. Videos are always great. You wanna make it as engaging as, and possible as fun, but don't make it overwhelming. You don't want the slide to be so busy that the audience isn't focused on you as a speaker, that they're only focused on the slide because the slide is so crazy, they can't look away from it. So you have to learn how to hone your PowerPoint. And there's tons of actual classes at this point. There's videos out there. Check those out. Read some articles. Figure out how to create a good solid PowerPoint presentation. And then go ahead and develop your speaking style. But here's the thing. Practice, practice, practice. You need to practice. There's too many people. I, It's a tragedy. People are invited to these large conferences as a fairly new speaker. They've got some decent speaking experience. Now they're invited to some of the largest conferences in the world and they didn't practice their content and it shows. So let me describe to you the do's and don'ts of a, being a new speaker. You need to show up at least 20 minutes early, minimally. I'm a fan of showing up 30 minutes beforehand. You do not wanna show up only two minutes beforehand. One, you're barely gonna have time to get your presentation up on the screen. And two, if there is an IT glitch, it's going to be chaotic. You need to make sure you show up at least 20 minutes, ideally 30 minutes ahead of time. I've been doing this for 17 years. I still show up 30 minutes ahead of time. I'm a very early person because I wanna make sure that my presentation's ready to go. I'm ready to go. I have a glass of water. I'm okay. Get your stuff in on time. So you will need to sign contracts. You may need to uh, go ahead and fill out like a form for race if it's a race approved continuing education credit. You need to potentially even go ahead and submit lecture notes. In fact, most large conferences still want you to write lecture notes. So that's why if you're writing lecture notes, cite all of your references and turn that into a published article to give yourself more street cred. Make sure you get the timing right. And this is where you practice, practice, practice. I see just 
too many tragic lectures happening where unfortunately speakers go way over time or they go way under time. You were hired for a certain amount of minutes. It's a 50 minute lecture. It's okay to end at 45 minutes. It is not okay to end at 30 minutes. I absolutely have seen that happen. Being too long is exceptionally rude. I have maybe in my lifetime gone a minute or two over on every single one of my lectures. I am a stickler to making sure I get my timing right. And here's why. The audience is ready to leave. Even if you were the best speaker in the world, they're ready to go. They got to go to the bathroom. They need to get to the next lecture. They're done. They know you're supposed to end. And if there's another speaker coming in, you are rude because you're cutting into their prep time. You need to get off that stage. You need to be done. You need to allow a time in between your lectures for the audience to go to the bathroom. Do not ask your, your audience for permission. Is it okay if I go over time? No, it's not. The conference said, this is when you end your lecture. So end your lecture. You can tell I'm a little fired up about it because this is to me one of the things that speakers, really good speakers, they just start rambling and then the audience is uncomfortable. And no, you were paid for a certain amount of time. So make sure that you meet that, that requirement, but also be very kind and end on time. That's super important. Make sure you're enthusiastic about your material. I know you're nervous. I, I, I was very nervous too. I definitely hid mostly behind the podium the very first time I did a full lecture at IVEX. It was an hour long presentation on the subject matter that I had actually won the case report. It was titled ischemia reperfusion injury. What a subject to be your first subject. And here I was terrified, but I memorized my presentation because I knew I would be absolutely terrified. I practiced it probably 40 or 50 times. That's right, 40 to 50 hours of just practicing it, making sure every word that I was gonna say, I knew it by heart, making sure I really knew the subject. So if people were gonna ask me questions, I knew it. And it's really important that you love it. And even though I was terrified, I remember purposely making sure I had infliction and enthusiasm in my voice so that my audience would get excited about ischemia reperfusion injury, which is really hard to get people excited about that. Now, what happens if you don't know something? It's okay. My younger years, I used to fret about this. I was like, here I am. I'm supposed to be the expert. And I'm, what happens if somebody asks me a question I don't know? It's all right. It's okay to say, you know what? That's a really great question. I don't know. This is one of my like, you know, life hacks for all brand new speakers. Just put that in, into your brain and say, that's a really great question. I don't know. But if you give me your email address or if you email me, I'll try to find the answer for you. But you asked a really great question. There's no shame in not knowing. So be honest. If you don't know, you don't know. Make sure you don't read your slides. That's also what I like to call death by words. So just use key phrases or bullet points within your slide. But if you start reading your slide, that's going to be really hard. Use words that will remind you of what to say, not actually what you're supposed to say. When you are presenting, it is okay if you are a new presenter to hide behind a podium. It's not okay the more comfortable you become. Your audience wants to see you and actually there's a disconnect with you when you are behind the podium. That said, if you are very nervous and you're a brand new speaker and you step out from a podium and you're visibly shaking or you're fidgeting, go back behind the podium. It's okay to hold on to the podium for dear life, 
in the beginning. But as you get more comfortable, you do need to learn how to step away from the podium and potentially even being without a podium. There's times where I've actually lectured in a circle in groups. Now, at times, obviously being in a circle, there's certain people who have my, my back is to them. I need to figure out how to engage the entire audience, which can get really tricky. One of my other life hacks to new speakers is only drink water from a water bottle. And I know that's like the weirdest thing to put in this podcast, but it's so important. You're going to get thirsty. You're probably going to have a dry mouth because you're a brand new speaker. You're very nervous. If you have an open cup of water, you will spill it all over yourself on your computer, on the podium. It's going to be a hot mess. So make sure that you have a water bottle. It's fully filled. And that is what you will drink from. And after you have survived this very amazing event of lecturing, I want you to say thank you to the person who invited you. That's really important. Be humble, be appreciative. I am still a fan of sending a personal email afterwards and thanking them for allowing me to be part of their conference. I never want them to feel like I, you know, just take these things for granted. Um, I definitely never think I'm tater chips. That's what I always say. Um, I don't want other people to think you're tater chips either. So you definitely want to make sure that people know you appreciate being a speaker for their conference. So let's talk about the money thing because everyone's like, how much money do you get paid? All right. It varies. I mean, honestly, it really does vary between conferences. When you are starting out, you have little to no street cred. So therefore, you should not be expecting to make big bucks. And to be perfectly honest, I don't make big bucks in most conferences. So average your local like state veterinary medical association or state vet tech association, they generally pay anywhere from as low as $100 an hour lecture all the way up to $400 an hour lecture. And that's what they pay. And that's the going rate. Now, I know, unfortunately, of veterinarians and technicians and veterinary nurses who actually request a higher rate. I do not do that. To me, it's like, pinch me. I'm so lucky that I get to do this. And fun story, I one time was invited to Australia because another speaker said that they would not accept the low rate that they were being given and felt like they needed to be paid more. So Australia reached out to me and I got to lecture that year. And I'm still eternally grateful because they paid for my flight. They paid for my hotel, which was amazing. I got to go some really cool events, which was really awesome. I mean, it's Australia. For an American to go to Australia, that's unbelievable. Like, they literally could have paid me almost nothing. I mean, it was nice they paid me something. So if you are listening and you're part of that organization, I'm grateful that I get paid. But I don't love to complain about money. I just think all the time, pinch me. I'm so lucky I get to do this. And so a lot of these smaller conferences, again, really low fees. And for some conferences, I have literally lectured for $0. I've given my time. I've had a couple state organizations reach out and say, hey, we're really struggling to like just get good speakers. Do you mind donating your time? And the answer to that is no, because it one allows me to try out maybe a new presentation, get to know a whole nother audience. And maybe when that conference does have better funds, I can be invited back. So I'm totally fine with that. The one thing I will say that I never do is I do not pay for my own travel. If the conference says, ooh, we can only have you lecture for one hour, but you'll also have to pay your travel, the answer to that is no. I'm broke. I need you to pay for my travel if you expect me to lecture in person. So that's the only thing that's kind of non-negotiable for me. But I've never had a conference say they wouldn't pay for my travel if they expected me to be there in person. 
As far as online, it varies. If it's a if it's a company that is going to be purchasing your material to profit from it, so, you know, there's a lot of online continuing education platforms that you know will buy content and then put it up on their on their website to make money from it. You as a speaker should be getting paid a higher fee. You know, five hundred, six hundred, seven hundred, eight hundred dollars because they're going to profit from you. But it still also gets your name out there. So. Even though that company is making money on your continuing education, your name gets to be tied to that. You get to advertise that. That actually becomes part of your street cred. So to me, it's still worth doing it, even though a company is going to be obviously making some money off of it. When you get into really big conferences, the fees are slightly better, but honestly, in some huge conferences, they pay $200 an hour and you have to decide, is it worth it? Now, if you're going there to lecture for six hours, okay, that's $1,200 and they're paying for your travel. That sounds amazing. And where is it? It's in, you know, a cool state or someplace I've not been to. Yeah, sign me up. Some of the bigger conferences do offer like one fee if you speak and then if you add in lecture notes, they'll pay you another percentage on top of that. So I think that there's some delusion that like speakers make thousands and thousands of dollars and that really doesn't happen. Now, if you are lucky to become a speaker for a big company like, you know, Zoetis or Merck or some of these other big name companies, sometimes you do really make a lot of money but that is because a lot of times you may need to plug their products or you have to, you know, go ahead and talk to stakeholders or things like that. That's way more complicated. Uh, that said, sometimes they don't pay any more than everybody else. So I think anybody who thinks, oh my gosh, you're a speaker, you must be rolling in the dough. No, at the end of this lecture day, I will have made $400. That's what I did. I did two lectures for $200 a piece. It was a local state conference. I drove myself. They didn't even pay for my mileage, but I was happy to do it. So um, absolutely the rates vary, but to me, I always accept whatever the conference does. Now, if you wanna set your own fees, just be aware you could end up like that person in Australia where they did not get the speaking gig because they had their set fees and then they lost out on lecturing in Australia. I hope that this podcast, for those of you who are interested in how to get into publishing or how to get into lecturing, helps you in some way. There's not a clear path. A lot of times it's meeting people at conferences, going up to conference organizers, chatting with them, building your resume, developing yourself, getting your name out there, getting name recognition, and then becoming a really successful speaker or a really successful publisher or both. It's 17 years of my career has been dedicated to both of these things. And again, in my early career, I thought, oh, well, I don't wanna stop writing. And you, you don't tend to make a lot of money for articles and things like that, but I just love doing it. And then now that I get to speak, I've lectured around the world. And honestly, it is one of the most amazing experiences in my entire career. I am so lucky that I get to travel the world and someone pays my travel expenses, which is phenomenal. I, I am just so honored and humbled every single time someone invites me to lecture for them. I just think, pinch me, I can't believe I'm getting to do this. It really is just a dream. I hope that this helps some of you fulfill your own dreams. Thank you for all that you do. Keep on being a unicorn and please check out all my other blogs, blogs, and podcasts at vetteamtraining.com.